You know, Miles, it's kind of shocking that Cerebro's never gone evil. Oh, hey, Jay. Uh, you mean given the whole danger situation? I mean, I guess there was the time when it thought it was the professor and tried to, you know, collect mutants to protect them from the world. I don't know. That's pretty benign as far as villainy goes. Cerebro's had some wild times, though. Remember when Beast used it to find humans to eat in Marvel Zombies? I try not to. But wait, I thought only telepaths could use Cerebro. Nah, Kate Pride fixed it so that non-telepaths could use it when Nightcrawler went missing after their fight with Nimrod, but everyone just kind of forgot about that. Huh. I mean, not that she should have needed to. Like, Cyclops was using it way back when it ran on punch cards. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 417 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to a comics run most intriguing. We are back with Uncanny X-Men and X-Men today, but more generally with comics. So after a long absence, I'm going to be working San Diego Comic-Con for my day job, which is Dark Horse Comics. So if you happen to be there and you want to say hi, please do so. But also like remind me who you are because I'm not great with faces at the best of times. And the last few years have been a lot. A long absence like your, your whole life up to this point? Oh, that's true. I've never been to San Diego. I've worked a lot of other conventions, but this is my first San Diego Comic-Con. So we'll, we'll see what that whole thing's about, I guess. It's very large. It seems very large. Just like Dinosaur Men, to transition back to the comics we're going to be talking about. So, of course, we talked last time about Sauron. Sauron is back. We're going to get to that. So much goddamn Sauron. But before we do, maybe we should talk a little about what happened previously on X-Men. With Operation Zero Tolerance finally concluded, the X-Men are in a somewhat liminal state. Uh, including as far as who writes them. Uh, like we said, after Scott Lobdell wrote both books for ages, Steve Siegel is now writing Uncanny X-Men, and Joe Kelly is now writing Adjectiveless X-Men. But within the 616, half the team returned from captivity by OZT, and half the team returned from space by way of Antarctica, and what they found was an empty X-Mansion, like, really, really empty. Not only did OZT pull out everyone's personal belongings, but they also stripped the paint and stole the furniture. Dick move, Operation Zero Tolerance, among your many other dick moves. The team is in a bit of a transition as well. Cyclops and Phoenix have retired to Alaska while Cyclops recovers from some major Operation Zero Tolerance-related injuries. Rogue is doing her best to process what she learned about Gambit. And the fact that she subsequently left Gambit to die in Antarctica. Bishop is convalescing in space under the care of Shi'ar semi-villain Deathbird, who has assured him that all of his friends are dead. Storm and Wolverine are, as the senior members, doing their best to hold the team together amid the chaos and confounded by several new members. Members like extremely angry and bone-throwing former Morlock Marrow, grumpy doctor with a force field Cecilia Reyes, and mysterious guy with two big bugs for a digestive system, Maggot. Not to mention Joseph, seemingly a de-aged and amnesiac am Magneto who does not yet know that he's not actually Magneto and that the actual Magneto is out there killing people. Beast is pretty much okay for now, actually. But, like, it's fine. He'll be, uh, not okay at all in future years. 
Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 353, Blackbirds. It's written by Steve Siegel, penciled by Chris Picello, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucciolato, lettered by Richard Starkins and Comicraft, and Colia Fuse. Take those broken wings and learn to fly. Actually, I do kind of wonder if this is a reference to that song, although that song was more of the civil rights movement. But then again, X-Men's kind of about the civil rights movement. The the Blackbirds referenced are are not actually Blackbirds. That I mean that one of them is is the SR seventy one, but um the other birds are are definitely crows or ravens. Yeah, there are so many birds. We've mentioned before, and we're going to come back to this time and again, that Steve Siegel was building up to a plot line where Gene would become the Phoenix again, and thus there are bird motifs freaking everywhere. Well, these particular birds, crows or ravens, are a motif that's going to follow Scott and Gene to Alaska and hit a climax there and still never quite be resolved. Hmm. Dissatisfying birds. Jerks. The other thing that Steve Siegel's comics are absolutely goddamn full of are captions. Oh, yeah, and not just random captions. Like, he seems to have a particular framing device, or, I don't know, shtick, in every issue that he writes. Here we've got the captions rhapsodizing about the nature of human touch. As we open to Rogue's Nightmare, she's in her old villain costume, and she's draining Wolverine dry, and, more disturbingly, she's enjoying it. She also, as she does this, uh, sadistically says that he's got a son, and she wonders if he would have the same great taste to his life essence. So this is weird, because, of course, we know that Wolverine does have a son, Dokken. Dokken won't appear for many, 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 many years. The only son we know about at this point is Arista, who is a child Logan had in the Savage Land back in Wolverine, the Jungle Adventure. And I'm pretty sure Rogue doesn't know about that kid. Mm, well, I mean, it's it's a dream. Dream logic applies. It's just sort of a weird thing to specifically mention, you know, while you're, like, growing claws and stabbing your buddy. Well, yeah, this is a, a Savage Land continuity-heavy storyline. That's true, and Rogue did spend some time in the Savage Land, as we will never forget, because there's so much art and fan art of her and her ripped-up, like, bikini version of her costume from there. Now, as it turns out, Rogue has been having these dreams ever since she left Gambit in Antarctica, although she doesn't know whether it's because of that or because of the night they spent together there without powers. And that's something we're going to come back to again as well. Rogue is feeling these new cravings, and what their origin is? Well, we'll kind of see. But for now, everybody's going to go swimming at the pond. Because high-contact play with minimal clothing is the perfect way to get Rogue out of a funk about not being able to touch anyone. It's uh, winter, but Storm has like a heat bubble, hence the minimal clothing and the pond. And Rogue is really, really on edge. She freaks out when Wolverine comes too close, remembering her dream, which Storm excuses away as, I quote, female troubles. I kind of wonder if Storm has any expectation that Logan would believe that. I would assume not. I mean, it's Logan and it's Storm. I sort of assume, actually, that anyone using the phrase female troubles in a year as late as this was published uses it with the understanding that the, the subtext is, this is a lie, but they don't want to talk about it. Well, that's legit. That's legit. Speaking of troubling females, uh, Jubilee is here. Yeah, what's up with that? Shouldn't she be somewhere imaginary with her ferret puka friend? I suppose so. Yeah, I'm not really sure why Jubilee's here, but having her back with the X-Men and having fun, and especially as like a playful foil to Logan, I feel okay about it. You know, not all stories have to take place perfectly in continuity month to month with each other. Whatever. She has friends at the X-Mansion, she's visiting the X-Mansion. 
Logan actually does not join in the fun at first because he senses an intruder on the grounds. This turns out to be Margaret Stone, an inspector for the Board of Education. Um, she's there because Xavier had not filed his biannual report in over two years, so it's reaccreditation time for the furnitureless Xavier School. Right, because Xavier's been imprisoned by shadowy government agents ever since the end of Onslaught, ages ago, and apparently this school still counts as a school, although I'm not sure anything educational has happened here for a long time. That's mostly a Gen X's school in Massachusetts. I absolutely buy Xavier as the kind of guy who does not file paperwork in any kind of sensible way such that other people can pick up where he left off. Like, he's just egotistical enough that I, I don't see him laying foundation for a successor. Oh, he'd be a terrible programmer. His comments would be incomprehensible if they were even there at all. But I like this Wolverine in this era. This is a good balance of Wolverine feeling responsible for everything, because, you know, he cares so much about the X-Men. They're his home, they're his family. But also getting more and more frustrated at having to deal with all the drama and also the dishonesty all around him, because everyone's super troubled right now. As he tells himself, Face facts. You're a loner. You've always been a loner. Domestic garbage may work in the short term, but it always loses its hold on you in the long run. Rogue, for her part, goes to Joseph and offers to help him start piecing together his past, and her great plan for doing this is by touching him and absorbing his memories, because she's desperate for any kind of physical contact. Right. And of course, we know that that is super risky. I mean, kind of it's risky. It seems like it's risky when she does it to a friend. I mean, we'll often see them have major problems after that. Gambit was in a coma for a while. But she used to go around kissing supervillains all the time to knock them out. It's very inconsistent. But this is interesting. I want to talk about this. So Rogue has this new sudden draw toward touch, but also kind of towards specifically getting into people's heads with her powers. Do we think this is because she got to have sex with Gambit once and that just awakened something in her? Like, what's going on here? I don't know. I, I think it's it's unclear in both the representation and the narration, as I mentioned above, whether this is coming from the night she spent with Gambit or from her having previously absorbed his consciousness, whether this is, this is still you know, Gambit banging around in her head. As opposed to, but I hear what you're saying. And the narration is really uh, going hard with this. Like, it even compares uh, her desire to do this to a vampire's kiss. You know, like that kind of a vampiric need. And in fact, we're going to have the vampiric hypnoterodactyl Sauron show up pretty soon to be a very clear parallel and foil. Kind of. I mean, I think it's more that Rogue is a very clear red herring when Sauron shows up. I don't know that he's he's really set up as a parallel to her. Maybe not. It's kind of hard to say, because, I mean, Siegel has his shticks that he goes so hard for, and I don't know which ones to focus on sometimes. So meanwhile, over at the lake, everyone hangs out and is silly. Iceman hits Wolverine with a snowball, and Wolverine is not silly. Wolverine doesn't like fun, so he pops his claws. Mero shows up in a tree to tell him off. Storm says to behave and have fun, and Wolverine storms off. And amid all of this, Iceman discovers the remains of the original X-Jet, the Blackbird. Well, okay, not the original X-Jet. The original Blackbird. The X-Jet was before the Blackbird, I think. Anyway, it's uh, hidden under the lake. Apparently, that's where Forge hid it when Storm told him to do so in a throwaway line in Adjectiveless X-Men number one. Huh. You would think that he'd put it somewhere where it wouldn't be, you know, destroyed. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it did escape uh, Bastion's troops' theft of literally everything around there. The only thing I can think of as far as why Iceman accidentally cuts himself on it, you know, during this this playful brawl, is maybe it was dislodged amid all of the various violence and chaos. You remember Cable was blowing a lot of people up in this mansion during that crossover. And it just kind of ended up on the lake floor? Oh, no, I think it was on the lake floor before, but it was, like, more neatly, flatly buried, like a flounder. Like, its eyes both migrated to the top side, so it could look up and, and see the beautiful sky. Yeah, but being stored underwater will have destroyed it. I don't know. Forge has good technology. Maybe he has some really good waterproofing. Maybe he just shrink-wrapped it. It's just shrink-wrapped, yeah. It's fine. He just heat-seals everything. It's like when you get a new gadget and you want to just use it everywhere. I know so many people who as kids got label makers and labeled literally everything in their bedrooms. Are those people secretly you? Uh, no, I never had a label maker. But that's exactly what I would have done if I had one. So Wolverine, after storming off, hangs out on a hill where he is ambushed by someone who we're presumably supposed to think is rogue, but who clearly has giant green hands with claws, so is probably not actually rogue. Oh, maybe she's got, like, those Hulk hands that you can buy that she's cheering herself up with those. They are really fun to wear. Wouldn't those block her powers? I guess they would. Why doesn't Rogue just wear Hulk hands all the time? That would solve so many problems. One of the great mysteries of X-Men. All right, uh, Rogue, if you're listening, please justify your decisions. Rogue, in fact, comes up and finds Wolverine drained and unconscious, and everyone immediately shows up and blames her. Rogue runs off, and Sauron swoops in to announce himself— so I feel like before we proceed any further, we should probably remind people, any poor unfortunate souls new to the podcast or unfamiliar, who the hell is Sauron? Oh god. So, a long, long time ago, there was something called the Comics Code Authority, which would not allow you to show vampires. To get around this, Roy Thomas created a character who was not a bat, he didn't turn into a bat, he turned into a pterodactyl. And he didn't drink people's blood, he sucked out their, their life energy. And he also wore tiny cut-off jean shorts for reasons that I assume also had to do with the Comics Code Authority and proper attire for pterodactyls. But um, yeah, so he's, he's this big, beefy pterodactyl. Oh, and he can hypnotize people with his eyes. Yeah. So really, tale as old as time. Very common trope. Hypnoterodactyl in jorts. When not being a pterodactyl, he's a scientist named Carl Lycos who is varyingly mild-mannered. Do you remember that old search engine, Lycos? Is that still around? I have no idea. Maybe it turned into a pterodactyl. Yeah, so anyway, Sauron's here. I love Sauron. He's so ridiculous. I love him so much. But th this time? Uh? Yeah, so he's got a gun now. Steve Siegel looked at Sauron, looked at this giant pterodactyl, and went, What does this pterodactyl need? This pterodactyl needs a gun. It's ridiculous. And yes, I realize how that statement sounds when we're talking about a hypno-pterodactyl in jorts. The gun is just a step too far. Oh, jeez, come on. I'm kind of reminded of uh, that Suicide Squad video game where, like, I guess they didn't have enough time to program, so even though you're playing characters like Boomerang and King Shark, everybody's got jetpacks and just uses guns. Wow, see, the jetpack mechanic now makes me think of Goat Simulator. Oh, now that was a thing that existed. Sauron would fit really well into Goat Simulator. He would. Here, he announces himself... It's a plane! It's a bird! It's Sauron! Evil incarnate is among you once more! Remember, Sauron is enough of a nerd that he named himself after the villain of Lord of the Rings, like, aware that that was what he was doing. Have I mentioned how much I love Sauron? He's a guy. Pterodactyl guy. 
pterodactyl guy. And oh, he's got a loincloth. He's got like a red loincloth now. I miss his jorts. Yeah, yeah. He traded his jorts for a gun, I guess. Which I don't know. I would have kept the jorts. Right. Anyway, meanwhile in New York, Warren Kenneth Worthington III, another winged fellow, Angel, is doing his usual thing and brooding on a rooftop. Well, his usual thing aside from swooping. Yeah, he is having feelings about having left the X-Men to their own devices at the mansion, and Psylocke tries to make him feel better by jumping off the roof so that he can catch her, which he does, but he's kind of pissed off about it. Their relationship will not last forever. Speaking of such things, meanwhile in space... Deathbird is experimenting with Munchausen syndrome by proxy. She's got an ostensibly paralyzed bishop on, on a little starship, and they are headed back to Shi'ar territory to take back over. And they'd been flirting before in the run before this, in Lobdell's run, but it's uh, taken quite a turn, as Deathbird tells Bishop. You're in no condition to do anything now, save bask in my all-consuming care and my undying love. You remember that story, Misery? Uh, vaguely. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, there's an author, and a lady's a big fan of him, and so she breaks his legs and makes him stay in a bed and, uh, has him, him type more, and it's really scary. That's a terrible approach to fandom. It really is. Fans do better. And meanwhile in Alaska, Jean telekinetically clears the snow in front of her and Scott's new house in the shape of a phoenix. We'll get back to that. But first, let's go to Uncanny X-Men number 354, Prehistory. This is, once again, written by Steve Siegel, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Buccioletto, but this time lettered by Richard Sarkins and Comicraft and Albert Deschane. There was a limited edition variant cover to this issue with Jean in a phoenix outfit. Uh, that'll be relevant. Yes, yes it will. And, and God, again, there are just, there are so many captions. This time, the framing device in those captions begins with a quote. It's a deceptively simple question. Why? But it's also the root of the most profound queries ever raised. And that leads nicely to the first page. Yeah, the first page has, has an image of Sauron pointing a gun at the reader and just saying, Why? And, um, it's, it's absolutely amazing. It's not good, but it's amazing. It's not quite as amazing as that panel of Frank Punisher bursting out of a giant wedding cake with a Tommy gun and yelling congratulations, but, like, it's almost. I'd like to think he stripped after that. Yeah, I hope so. It's better than shooting people. He probably shot people. It's Frank Punisher. Damn it, Frank Punisher. Anyway, we get a brief how Sauron got here, which I have done my best to decipher, listeners. Please bear with me here. Because remember, last time we saw Sauron, if we've been reading the Khazar comics, he was in the Savage Land fighting his nemesis, Khazar, the very educated caveman who's basically Tarzan. I have not been reading the Khazar comics, so I'm just gleaning this from what we are introduced to on the pages of Uncanny X-Men. So Sauron fought Khazar, and Khazar defeated him and left him for dead. And then Khazar decided he was going to move out of the Savage Land and move to New York instead, so he packed up all his possessions in big crates, apparently including Sauron. So I think what happened, I agree it's unclear, is that Sauron pulled a solid snake and snuck into a box that was going to be shipped back to New York because he was done with the Savage Land. Strong disagree, that box is clearly not labeled the orange. Oh, well, there is that. But the art here is really great. There's this wonderful body horror image that Pacello draws of Carl Lycos in the shadows, and the shadowy parts are, like, distending and growing into his pterodactyl form. Like, it sounds silly, but it's actually really good body horror. So Sauron gets, gets shipped to New York City with the rest of Khazar's belongings, 
and uh, lets himself out. The moving truck arrives before Kazar and Shenna the She-Devil arrive. And so Soren lets himself out in New York City, eats a random human, and then finally finds himself a mutant named Ellison Payton, who is exists not even long enough to get a name because he's only named after he's after his death is described. And then Sauron sniffs really hard and smells a bunch of mutants a few towns over, and that's the Xavier School. And he heads over there, and would have drained Wolverine dry if Rogue hadn't interrupted him, and that brings us up to the present when everyone fights. I mean, we won't go through the entire fight. That would take forever. But there are a few things we should probably call out. First and foremost, giving Sauron a gun does not in fact make him any more formidable. No, no, like, the only thing he does with it is he shoots Storm at one point, and she's basically fine. Also, he attacks Cannonball and knocks him into some power lines, and I try not to be too much of a stickler about continuity, like what characters should and should not know, but Cannonball should really be reacting more strongly to Sauron here. Sauron literally killed Sam Guthrie back in early X-Force. Cannonball was dead. Like, the only way he came back was because he was supposedly one of the immortal externals, and then that was forgotten. But still, you, you don't forget that you're dead, that you get impaled by a dino man. I mean, and especially, you don't forget Sauron. He's, he's pretty memorable, it's true, even without the killing. He really is. He's not the kind of guy you run into every day, I guess, unless you live in the Savage Land. So Sauron, Sauron appears to have not only come here from the Savage Land, but also straight from the Silver Age. He uses his Hypno-Ice on Iceman and tells him, I am your friend, fellow mutant, your ally, mind and soul, against the evil she-creatures that would rise against us. Now, he's specifically trying to turn Iceman against Jubilee, whom Sauron is fighting at this point. But, um, what the hell, man? It sounds kind of like he's trying to recruit for the incel movement. Bad pterodactyl, man. Bad. I don't feel like Sauron... Like, Sauron had... Look, Sauron has a lot of negative qualities. I will absolutely, absolutely admit that. I don't really feel like rampant misogyny is one of them. Like, he doesn't really need it no no i don't even think he thinks about gender very much like everybody is just psychic food that he can monologue at he doesn't want to cure cancer he just wants to turn people into dinosaurs and the dialogue just keeps coming at one point he's fighting jubilee and she says you're just assuming i'm running away mr green jeans and you know what they say happens when you assume i was just trying to keep you an arm's length away I don't have arms. I have wings, powerful ones. And now, beneath those mighty appendages, Sauron stands triumphant. Arrested Development Narrator responds, he does not stand triumphant. No, no, he loses the fight. But at least he got to say some silly stuff first. Rogue heads back to the mansion and finds Joseph unconscious, I assume as a result of Sauron, but it's unclear. I don't know, because earlier, after Rogue left, we saw that he suddenly clutched his head and screamed and smashed everything around him. We don't know why. I think the assumption we're supposed to have is that Magneto is somehow around, because we do know from past issues that whenever Joseph gets too close to Magneto, he gets all messed up. But I don't think that's really ever followed up on. It's like having your phone too close to a microphone? Uh, I guess so, yeah. It's just feedback. They do talk about psychic feedback a lot. I like the idea that that's exactly what it sounds like. Oh god, that is a horrible sound, to be fair. It is, yeah. Now, Rogue finds him unconscious, and she attempts to give him CPR with the attendant problems. 
Mero shows up midway through this and is impressed with Rogue for being ruthless and apparently murderous. Okay, you know you done fucked up when Mero sees you as a kindred spirit. Joseph wakes up and Rogue runs away and takes a cab to the AG Institute. AG Institute? AGE Institute? A-G-E-E. Uh, that one. So, yeah, this is something we heard mentioned briefly in a past issue, but basically there is a scientist, Dr. A.G., Aggie, whatever, who has found what he sees as a cure for the mutant gene. And so Rogue goes to check it out to be free of these powers, of these cravings, of this inability to safely touch anyone. And if this sounds familiar, it's because A, this was done in Joss Whedon's The Cure storyline, no relation to the band, and B... This isn't that far away from what happened in a combination of X-Men 1 and 3, the movies specifically with Rogue. Well, and this has also happened, I thought this had happened previously in the comics. Well, Rogue was attacked by someone with a mutant depowering ray that Forge had made when she was, you know, wanted for various crimes. That was when Storm got shot with it instead, when Storm dived in front of it. But I think this may be the first time that Rogue has gone off to a doctor vowing to cure mutant powers. This is also the same doctor Pyro was trying to go to before he ended up in the hospital being treated by Cecilia to quiet down his powers since they were going out of control because of the legacy virus. Never mind. You know what? I think I'm actually remembering this plot line as having happened earlier than it actually is. <laughs> That's the fun part about comics that have been going on for decades and decades. It's kind of hard to remember what order things happen in sometimes. So that's it for New York. What's up in Alaska? Well, Cyclops is crappy at actually resting and recovering, and thus is honing his optic blasts by shooting tortilla chips, which is actually really funny. When Jean surprises him by showing up with no warning in the Phoenix costume. Jean! Dude! That costume has some rather messed up associations! Like, the last time Scott hung out with someone in a version of that costume, she died on the moon! And I guess this is the green version and not the red Dark Phoenix version, but, like, still. Now, she was wearing the Marvel Girl costume when she died on the moon. Oh, that's a good point. But, uh, regardless, you know, a lot of Phoenixy associations with a lot of tragedy in Scott and Jean's pasts. And we'll get to why Jean is doing this. It's actually very well justified. But, like, at least before you enter the room, be like, hey, Scott, don't panic, but I want to talk to you about something. Or something! Yeah, you don't spring the Phoenix costume on X-Men who were there for the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix sagas. That's just rude. And that brings us to X-Men number 73, The Elements Within Us. Written by Joe Kelly, with a script assist by Joe Casey, we're full of Joes. Pencils by Jeff Johnson, or maybe just we're full of the letter J. Inks by Dan Panosian, nope, guess not. Colors by Steve Olaf, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. So yeah, we are switching for this issue from uncanny to adjectiveless, and thus from Steve Siegel to Joe Kelly. So Joseph is fresh from waking up and is getting more and more just disturbed by everything that's been going on, and he comes to a conclusion that no comic book, or for that matter, fictional character, should ever have to come to. Why am I here? My actions don't seem to make sense anymore. This may be meta-commentary by Joe Kelly, and in fact, based on how things go, perhaps he's not the biggest Joseph fan. The here in question, as it turns out, is Rogue's bedroom watching her sleep. Damn it, Joseph. Like, I know you're a big fan of Rogue and you've been trying to help her and stuff, but, but that's just rude. So Rogue hits him in the face with a, with a pillow. It's really fun, actually. Well, and says so she's gonna, you know, actually hurt him if he ever does this again, which, good. Don't. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, he is here out of concern. She's been depression napping a lot ever since the thing that happened with Gambit, so, you know... All right, maybe some okay motives. The rest of the X-Men, meanwhile, are hanging wallpaper. 
because, you know, they have no money at this point. All of their benefactors are gone, and the mansion is just like a bunch of wooden walls and floors and ceilings. And wallpaper is, for some reason, their current priority. But not just any wallpaper. Oh, man. Uh, Steve Olaf, you're responsible for colors, so you're responsible for this, for ill or good. They're hanging wallpaper with vertical blue and purple stripes on one wall, and wallpaper with vertical green and neon pink stripes on another. I mean, I have a very colorful home that my wife and I have decorated. No, but... no, this this looks like Satan's candy store. God, it really does. And I just wish they'd committed. I wish that every time after this, any scene set in the X-Mansion would just have that fucking, like, pink and green on half the walls. Or Xavier had come back and was like, what the fuck have you done to my home? And then he just turns around and goes back to government jail. Yeah. It's amazing. But... The mailboat is here! I dare you to catch that reference. And Beast is very beastly in his description. Attention, fanatical philatelists and postal pundits! The mail! She has arrived. Oh, Joe Kelly, you're so good at dialogue. It's a letter from the aforementioned Professor Xavier, who doesn't yet know about the wallpaper, or perhaps he wouldn't have written. But, like... It was very clearly written with the knowledge that it would be read by his captors. It's all formal and generic and just has these general messages of holiday wishes, of missing everybody, of being proud of everybody. He was taken by the government after Onslaught way back in Uncanny number 337, like a year and a half worth of comics before. He's been gone for a while, and I like that it really feels like it. It does, yeah. And while Joseph sees the positivity as evidence of, of Xavier's perseverance, Wolverine is much less impressed. Well, slap my mouth and call me sunshine. Magneto here's found religion. It's a holiday freaking miracle. Kelly's Wolverine is kind of like Hama's Wolverine. It's great. He should always sound grumpy, but like in an old-timey way. Old-timey prospector, Wolverine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I feel like Wolverine's slang should always sound like it came from a novel published at least 20 years before. Agreed. Joseph goes off, uh, still smarting from his minor pillow wound, to find Maggot to talk, and finds Maggot African slanging to his slugs. And the reason Joseph's looking for Maggot is, remember, back in Uncanny number 350, Maggot called him a friend, was relieved to see him, right before Joseph was randomly knocked out. So Joseph figures... This guy must know me. This guy must know who I am, or at least who I was. Maggot dodges the question. He is super uncomfortable, but he is saved from having to answer by a flying Mossad agent. Uh, Sabra attacks, and she is here to execute Magneto for his past crimes. Yeah, she's been all over the place lately. She showed up to go with Gabrielle Holler to find the forgery artist that Magneto killed. She just turned up an Excalibur to bring them over to Israel to fight Legion. I think she was being really pushed as a major character at this point. And we can see how well that went by her omnipresence to this day. Yeah, yeah, it didn't really go anywhere. Just trying to make Fetch happen. Maggot tries to fight back to protect his friend, but uh, Sabra's super badass, so it doesn't work out. So Maggot is forced to play the card he didn't want to play. He tells her, and Joseph, who wakes up at this time, that Joseph is not, in fact, Magneto, and is thus not guilty of Magneto's crimes. And as Maggot explains, he thought they were the same, but then actual Magneto showed up and swore him to secrecy. And then dressed up as Eric the Red and ran a trial, but that's neither here nor there. Man, Magneto's so weird. 
Sure is. So Joseph is kind of dumbfounded. He didn't know who he was, and now he really doesn't know who he is because the one connection he thought he had isn't real? And Sabra says, look, we gotta track this guy down, maybe you're connected, if you come with me, we can figure this mystery out, but we have to leave right now. We can't let the real Magneto know that we're onto him. You can't take time to say goodbye, we gotta go. Does she ever do every- anything that isn't, like, to the moment urgent? Uh, no, no, she's, um, she's real intense, like, too intense. She must be such an asshole at restaurants. Oh god, yeah, she, like, makes all the waiters cry. Oh. Damn it, Sabra. And off they go, and indeed, we won't see Joseph for, like, a year's worth of comics, not until the Magneto War. Maggot, for his part, is sworn to secrecy, so he just heads on back. And no one's gonna wonder where Joseph went? They care that little? I mean, I think they ask, and Maggot just says, look, I'll keep it vague. Joseph's only request is that if Rogue asks, Maggot make it clear to her that it's nothing to do with her, it's not her fault, he's not mad at her. I feel really bad for Joseph, like, in part because his entire premise was completely undermined and then he just didn't really have a place in comics for a while. Like, he'll be back, but he'll only ever be a shadow of a person. It's rough to be a shitty clone of Magneto. Tis. Tis. Beast, meanwhile, is having a much better time in the mansion and shows Cecilia Reyes a list that he posted, which is labeled... Proclamation of Personal Premeditations for the Impending Year. Which is to say, New Year's resolutions, because this issue takes place around New Year's Eve. We'll get to those. But at the board, an uncertain storm talks to Wolverine about what happened recently with Marrow, when she asked Wolverine to get Marrow in line to make her vaguely civilized, and it almost ended up with one of them dying. Are you saying that you allowed Marrow to stab you as part of a lesson? Maybe. Or maybe I'm just doing a great job of rationalizing. I'll let you know when I figure it out. And finally, the clock strikes 12, and no one has joined Beast to watch Dick Clark, but he's happy about one thing. The resolution list is full. I'm unhappy about it because it's all in, in fonts that I recognize, which is a little frustrating for something that's supposed to be handwriting, but, yeah, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say you get what you pay for in terms of that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But let's go through these resolutions, because it's a nice little look into the heads of each character without having to have an entire nightmare issue with Bamps everywhere to get there. Beast's resolution. Eat fewer Twinkies. Read more 15th century texts. Cure a legacy virus. He's very optimistic about that third one, or so he claims, earlier to Cecilia Reyes. But, uh, sorry Hank, you're not gonna find a cure until Uncanny number 390, way ahead in 2001. Cecilia, for her part, writes, I want to finish my residency and get a life going again. And Wolverine, To be the best there is at what I do, as soon as I figure out just what that is. Macrame. Storm says, Find the wisdom in my leadership. Learn from my friends. Reestablish my relationship with Mother Earth. And Maggot, the last on the list, writes, To do right by my new friends. To become an X-Man. To be free. We know so little about Maggot at this point, and I'm not really sure how much we'll actually learn, because of course this run is famous for abandoned, editorially mandated, abandoned plot lines. But the slow build of just what his deal is between this and all the stuff with his conversation with Sabra and Joseph and all these allusions to a dark past, like, this dude is intriguing. He is. He really, really is. Meanwhile, in, uh, Germany... 
a postal worker finds the package that a dying dude threw onto a postal airplane as he died last issue, and is about to send it back for insufficient postage, when a bunch of African warriors show up to stop him by speaking to him telepathically. Yeah, this plotline is a real slow burn, and honestly, a lot of them are. Kelly and Siegel don't really write like past X-Men writers. They have this almost iconoclastic feel to themselves in some ways. Like, they respect continuity, they're not beholden to it, and they respect past styles, but they're not beholden to it. But one thing they definitely do that feels like old X-Men is having a bunch of little plots simmering along in the background for many, many issues at a time before they finally come up. For instance, also, we recently saw Sebastian Shaw of the Hellfire Club get a package from someone he referred to as a wraith, with a little picture of a Mesoamerican icon inside. And uh, he's still thinking about that at a party he's throwing at the Hellfire Club's headquarters in Brazil. Uh, Angel and Psylocke are there thanks to their rich families. If they're still rich, they should be helping pay for the mansion so that they don't have to put up shitty wallpaper, damn it. Do you think it's really wallpaper? I wonder if it's wrapping paper that they're just gluing to the walls because they don't know what the hell they're doing. You know, it's it's possible. I didn't know how to do laundry on my own because my mom always did it for me. And so the first time I tried to do it, I uh, stuffed the washing machine way too full and used too much soap. And there was a bunch of stuff on my pockets and it was disastrous. Yeah, I still remember the first time you tried to make ramen. I mean, you, you can burn water because I did. Anyway... Sebastian Shaw is much better at uh, a lot of things, I suppose, and uh, he uses that good judgment-ish to decide he's going to accept this mysterious offer from this mysterious wraith, or possibly from the IRS, as we alluded to last time. The wraith is pleased. Excellent, Shaw. Proper choice. Only choice. Today, Shaw, your world ends. Your life begins. But no, it doesn't, because Editorial told Kelly to abandon this plotline, and thus none of this is ever mentioned again. Where would it have gone? I have no idea whatsoever. I haven't even been able to find any rumors about this one. There is an alternate timeline somewhere where Sebastian Shaw followed his destiny and became one of the world's most acclaimed and innovative modern dancers. I would read the hell out of that. Oh, and then Shinobi Shaw could come back from the dead, and like they could be rival modern dancers, father and son, and they could learn to love each other again. And then Sebastian would finally tell Shinobi what sex was. Or would he? Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 355, North and South. This issue is written once again by Steve Siegel, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Tim Townsend, John Beatty, and Andy Smith, colored by Steve Buscellato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicrafts, Emerson Miranda. I really love the framing device for this issue, because you, you talk about, uh, you know, Siegel and Kelly as iconoclasts, and here is where we learn that the X-Men have an answering machine. Right, this team that is famous for never calling anyone or receiving calls. I guess if you never receive calls, you might as well have an answering machine. But that's where we start. We have an answering machine in front of a portrait of Professor X, famously missing Professor X, and various other plot lines and books are calling in. Right, so we've got Nightcrawler calling based on his recent misgivings in Excalibur, Margaret Stone from the Department of Education saying she'll be sending a representative to audit them. Although editorial apparently told Siegel to abandon that plot line too, so that never happens. It doesn't happen until the Jason Aaron run. <laughs> right. And Gene calls and has to call back repeatedly because the, the tape length is so short. 
which is one of those things that I feel like kids today are probably not going to understand, but how long you had to leave a message varied tremendously. You could usually set it, and some people would set theirs at like 10 seconds to be evil, which I guess Xavier did. And she is calling repeatedly um, about meeting a new, especially shady version of Department H a few issues ago and warning them that they may be coming for Wolverine. Right, because remember, when she was on that unfortunate plane with Scott, there was a psychic entity that Department H ended up taking away. Uh, That was also where the box containing Sauron was, for that matter. Oh, right. Anyway, speaking of Sauron, after the big fight, Wolverine is driving Sauron into the city on his motorcycle to turn him into the authorities. So, three things about what's happening here. Thing one— Logan's motorcycle is painted yellow and has three light blue slashes on it, exactly like his costume, which is charming, but not quite as charming as in X-Men Evolution, the cartoon, where he has a motorcycle helmet that has points like his mask slash hair. Thing two, Sauron is bundled in burlap and bound messily in chains, and Logan tells Sauron he'd better not draw attention to them. Logan, come on. And thing three... Logan narrates, of course, about being the best there is at what he does. Today I'm riding a hog with a monster named Sauron strapped to the back of it into the city. Guess that means if there was a contest of lots of guys doing the same, I'd win. To be fair, Sauron is probably a pretty difficult passenger on a motorcycle. I just like the idea of a contest of lots of guys doing the same. You know, it's like the cheese rolling contest or the wife carrying contest, except it's the carrying a dinosaur man on the back of your motorcycle, except he's bound in burlap and chains contest. Ah, yes, that one. That one. We don't have time for a thing four because they're interrupted by Alpha Flight. It's been a while. Jay, who's Alpha Flight? Alpha Flight is is the Canadians. Specifically, their super team and Logan's old team before he quit to join the X-Men. And they're, they're led by Guardian and Vindicator. These are the Hudsons um, who, with whom Wolverine had a fairly feasibly triadic relationship after they found him feral in the middle of the Canadian woods for a while. The point is, they're close. We also have some new members, Murmur, Flex, Radius, and Manbot, most of whom are raised in a Department H-run creepy orphanage. This run of Alpha Flight is all about the team being manipulated by an exceptionally shadowy Canadian government. We've talked about this before. In the Marvel Universe, the Canadian government is terrifying. Yeah, um, one of the specific foibles of Earth-616, and I guess, I guess probably more versions of Earth, is Canada is, like, super evil. I know, right? It's kind of awesome, actually. So, you mentioned we have a couple old members, Guardian and Vindicator, Logan's old friends, except this Guardian is much younger. He's apparently a young clone being presented as a de-aged version of the original, even though he's a clone, and the original is actually still alive. Sound familiar? I mean, I feel like the, the Joseph situation would be way more awkward if Joseph were on a team with Magneto's wife. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, there are also former members Puck and Sasquatch, but what I love about Sasquatch is Sasquatch was a guy named Walter Langowski, and in this run of Alpha Flight, Department H, when they were rebuilding the team, thought they found Langowski and he was all savage, but no, they just found like a random actual Sasquatch, crammed him onto the team, and had him mind-controlled by one of the new members, Murmur. Whoops! That's extremely funny. I know! I haven't actually read the comics very much, so maybe there's more to it, but but it makes me happy. 
So Alpha Flight is here to bring Logan in, not to rejoin the team as as they tried to make him do in Uncanny 120, but because they saw video evidence of him murdering their old teammate, Madison Jeffries, also known as Box, who will show up much, much, much later uh, with a wild crush on the Incarnate Danger Room. But after some posturing with the various Alpha Flight members, Logan just leaves. He gives not one shit and just bikes away. There's this great set of panels as Logan and his smoky cigar circle Guardian, and he sniff, sniff, snorts, says, uh-huh, and just walks away and gets on his bike and leaves. Like, I love how blasé he is about this whole thing, about being accused of murder. I mean, it's Wolverine. This is Tuesday. Right. But it is a great way to introduce us to these various characters who may not be familiar if you're just an X reader, as they each interact with Wolverine during this part of the story. So we see, like, Guardian is duty bound, Vindicator is compassionate, Puck is chill, Sasquatch is animalistic, Manbot is inhuman, Flex is timid, Radius is a bully, Murmur is friendly. It's actually a really efficient way of introducing a bunch of characters. So Wolverine rides off, and Alpha Flight will have none of this, so they immediately attack. And we should mention here that we see all of this from Alpha Flight's perspective in Alpha Flight Volume 2, Number 9, also written by Steve Siegel. If you read both of these issues, you see the same series of events, but from two very different perspectives, and it's actually really cool. Nice. So what what am I missing if I just read X-Men? Well, not a ton, mainly getting into the heads of the characters more. We see that everybody's kind of uncertain about what they're doing. They trust the government, but their memories aren't really holding together. And it does cut repeatedly to General Clark, the Department H guy behind all of this, as he is clearly manipulating everything and freaking out more and more as the plan falls apart. So plot-wise, you're not missing a lot. Characterization-wise and tone-wise, it's very different. So Rogue, who is on her way back from her, her appointment with the Edgy Clinic, um, randomly flies by, uh, sees the fight, and tells Logan that she'll, she'll be right back with help. And indeed, the X-Men show up to assist. And the fight does eventually end, for two reasons, not directly related to a bunch of people punching each other. So first, Logan pops his claws, and Vindicator realizes they're bone. There's no adamantium, but Department H said they were tracking Logan by the adamantium and his skeleton. And that just starts making her and the rest of the team question, wait, what else has Department H been lying about? Why are our memories of all of this so vague? Why can't we think straight? And then Cannonball is the one to actually stop to listen to the terrified Flex, and he realizes that Alpha Flight is probably being set up by their bosses. Like, for one thing, and when Flex tells the story of this supposed murder of Madison Jeffries, Cannonball says, dude, we were all in jail because of Operation Zero Tolerance at the time. Logan couldn't have killed this dude. And I love that it's Cannonball, even though he's about to careen into this dude, like, blast and Cannonball style, that's like, wait, wait, should we just talk this out? Should we all maybe just listen to each other? I was really skeptical about Cannonball as a member of the X-Men when he first joined the team when he left X-Force for the X-Men, but I like him as the dude that actually is thoughtful. The dude whose good heart isn't so blocked by this gigantic history of all kinds of trauma and all kinds of violence. And with that, Alpha Flight apologizes and decides they're going to go home and have some serious words with Department H. And the X-Men are like, cool, we'll help if we can, and everyone goes their own way. 
So the misunderstanding-based fight between two superheroes or two superhero teams is a long-worn trope in comics, and it can get really annoying because the answer is always just to talk about it. I think this one's handled really well. Like, we get a lot of information about who these characters are, what their dynamics are, and it's also just fun. Yeah, agreed. I I think this is better and more interesting than they usually are. It does feel like more of an Alpha Flight story than an X-Men story, or at least like we're missing the attached Alpha Flight story, which makes me wonder how many folks were reading both books. Yeah, this event was definitely, well, I would say it was an advertisement for Alpha Flight, a book selling less than X-Men, because like everything was selling less than X-Men. But the thing is, the issue of Uncanny X-Men doesn't actually mention that you can also see the other side of the story in Alpha Flight. You'd think they would really publicize the hell out of that to get more eyes and dollars on that book. Uh, Yeah, I got nothing there. Well, that's what's up as far as a bunch of Canadians. Let's talk about some folks in Alaska. Let's see what's up with Cyclops and Phoenix after the green and yellow cosmic fashion show that Gene just suddenly showed up as part of. So, Jean is still in in her green phoenix costume. She's in the yard, surrounded by giant flames, which is not a great way to stay subtle around the neighbors, but, you know, you do you. Green phoenix, green phoenix. Okay, it's going to be greenix in my head from now on. I don't know how I haven't thought of that before, but... The art is so good. Like, Chris is doing the art here, and he draws Gene in that pose with such power, but then also such humanity right after. Like, she goes from this fierce, flying power pose to then holding her hands to her chest and crying as she talks to Cyclops as she realizes how much she's upset him through this reveal. It's visually incredible. Like... It's a little unfeasible that she would do this, but Bacello just draws such beautiful body language and facial expressions that I almost don't care. So Scott is understandably freaked out to see her in the Phoenix costume, and she concludes that that's because he doesn't trust her to not go dark Phoenix. And, man, I really, really like Siegel's gene. This isn't about causing you or anyone else pain. It's about ending mine. I do see your thoughts, ones maybe you aren't even consciously aware of. You constantly remember Phoenix, Scott, and Madeline Pryor. There are all these negative images of women you thought were me at various times, and all their memories are marching around your mind wearing this outfit. But I'm here with you. I'm standing right in front of you, and I'm tired of their ghosts. I claimed the name Phoenix as part of a plan to claim this identity, to empower myself. I'm tired of suppressing my abilities just because I'm afraid that exploring them might upset you. I want to be all I'm capable of being, and convince you that I can do that without becoming some nightmare woman in the process. I love this, Gene. I love this rationale. I still think that warning was called for. Oh, 100%. But this is great. I agree. This is the perfect years later redemption and continuation of the Dark Phoenix saga. You know, that's often criticized, as much as it's a wonderful story, as being a story about how when women get too powerful, they go nuts, that women cannot be trusted with power. I don't know that that's a complete reading of the story, but that is a common criticism. And I like that Jean here is kind of addressing that, is kind of saying, hey, all of this, all of these events have been unfair to me, and I want to fix it. I want to be a whole person. I want to accept this part of my past as not defining who I am and not being something to just continually run away from, because that's running away from parts of who I am. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
And in fact, Jean's going to wear the Greenix costume for quite a few years to come. No more orange and blue 90s Jim Lee outfit. What did you think of that outfit, Jay? The one that she wore during the relaunch in the early 90s, the orange and blue one? I fucking hate it. It's weird. Like, it's a neat design, but it's so not Jean. Like, I'm not saying characters can't change their color schemes every once in a while, but that had nothing in common with anything she'd ever worn. It feels completely generic to me. Like, I feel like that's an outfit that you put random nameless NPC soldiers for some organization in. <laughs> Fair. I think part of it's also that I associate it with the animated series, and I love X-Men the animated series, but we have to face that in that series, what Jean mostly did was to say Scott and faint. Yeah, and the costume sucks there, too. <laughs> Sorry, I, like, I, this, this is, like, years of resentment saved up. I know this costume is a fan favorite, and I just, I dislike it so much. That is fair. That is fair. Well, we won't have to read comics with it for a long time. I mean, these days in the Krakoa era, any character can wear any costume they've ever worn, so I'm sure we'll see some more of it there, but... Yeah, in the comics we're covering now, it's Greenix all the way for years to come. And as the issue ends, we're back to that answering machine. And this time, it's Cyclops calling in. Hey, it's uh, Scott. Just wanted to... to, uh... You know, it's nothing. Never mind. Bye. It's Scott again. I don't know why I'm saying this, but I feel like I have to. It's Gene... Scott, who are you talking to? Uh, no one, honey, just... Man, so there we go. So many plot lines going on at the same time. I think the Scott and Gene one is the most compelling. I think the Soren with a gun one is the silliest. But again, these issues aren't as good as the last Siegel and Kelly issues we read, but they're still really, really engaging and interesting. Yes, the Scott and Gene plot line is definitely the one that I'm here for, although I'll admit that, that I have, you know, biases coming into that. But it's, yeah, it's the most compelling, and I feel like it's it's both the most interesting powers-wise and the best character drama happening right now. Speaking of things that are the best, hey, it's our listeners, and they've got questions. Vord99 comments on our website for the posts for episode 412, that was our last Siegel and Kelly episode, with a really well-thought-out take on how this era lacks the reverence for its characters and the premise of X-Men and is better for it. Like, seriously, read the comment. Vord99 is always worth reading on on our comments on the blog. But at one point, Vord99 says, I'm a bit curious about how positively our hosts are responding, because they've spoken a lot in the past about how important the X-Men as found family is. So far, this era reads a bit like a critique of the idea that this concept is any kind of healthy found family. So we wanted to address that, because that is a good point. Yeah, I love this point, and because it brings me to a related point that I is, is one of the things I like most about this run, which is that the thing about found families is that just like natal families... They're not always healthy, and sometimes they are wildly dysfunctional, and in fact, the X-Men usually are. And, like, part of that is is the dynamics of the characters, part of it is, you know, long-running superhero comic conflict breeds narrative, but here, this is, this is you know, the dynamic of that family being really thrown off when a lot of its members leave, and there are new folks, and the, and the balance is really upset, and I think that's that's an entirely reasonable take on it. Completely agree. Like, I always think about how, I'm sure everyone's read about this, how people can get depressed when they use social media, in part because they only ever see everybody's curated, positive version of their lives. Well, not all the time, but often that's the case. And so you feel like you must be a real fuck up if your life is not that. And so 
it's kind of comforting seeing this found family still be, like you said, Jay, as messed up as a natal family can be. Because that's the thing. Found family isn't inherently superior to native family any more than it's the case the other way around. It's a valid type of family, and that's going to be imperfect. And sometimes it's going to go through really rough patches. What I really like is seeing that even with all these problems, the team doesn't disintegrate, even when it seems like that would be easier for some of these characters. That even the new characters like Cecilia, who wish they could have their old lives back, they find reasons to stick around, they find things to connect to. They find connections with other characters that they are just now getting to know. And that through all of this, the concept of the X-Men continues to exist and continues to mean something. Yes, very much so. So I suspect there are um, multiple levels of uh, emotional reaction to this whole thing for, for both of us here. But it's it's nice to just have it be this messed up and persist. Strata King asks on Tumblr, One of the criticisms I've seen of the Dark Phoenix saga, from someone who didn't really like it and who doesn't much care for it, the X-Men period, is that there is nothing about it that makes it an X-Men story and would fit just as well with Avengers or Teen Titans or whatever team. What do you think? Mm, yeah, so I will agree that there's nothing that specifically makes it a mutant story. But I think it's very much a Jean Grey story, and to a lesser extent, a Cyclops story. Like, it heavily relies on who they are and where they've been as people and as superheroes and as members of a longtime couple. And with that, it's pretty uniquely built around them. I think the ways in which it could be anyone's story are the elements of it that are, are common tropes. So, you know, power corrupting, etc. And in, in that regard, yes, you could do that with anyone, but the specifics are what really make it what it is, and the specifics are very, very grounded in the X-Men. Yeah. And honestly, X-Men as a franchise would be boring if it was always only oppression metaphor stuff. Like, we need space nonsense and magic nonsense and vampire nonsense, especially vampire nonsense, because in that way, that kind of variation, that helps the perpetual oppression and bigotry seem even more intense. Like, even when you have all these genre options— it just keeps coming back to that. And I think that makes it kind of work better than it would if that was the only plot line we ever went to. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It's been a while, but let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Wow. Wow, Charles Ford. You and Jason Stanhope just, you just had to be extra edgy, didn't you? Got some of that 90s grit between your teeth and a holster on your hip full of... What even is that? Because, look, if you think it makes you look cool, buddies, you are sorely, sorely mistaken. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Dylan Higgins, filling in for Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it's back to X-Force. And the return of Rainfire. Whoever that ends up being. Whoever that ends up being.